artificial intelligence for healthcare. I've heard about it for years, but I actually don't see it very much. So, are there intelligent machines in healthcare or not? I want to know exactly where we are standing. First up will be in Helsinki, at the headquarters of the sponsor of this episode, Microsoft. So please join me. My name is Hanna Brada and I welcome you to my pod, The Help. Uh, artificial intelligence has been around uh, uh, forever. <clears throat> we think it's something new, but actually it isn't. Um, uh, uh, and really, uh, what we're seeing at the moment is the application of artificial intelligence, i.e. using it to I'm get machines to I'm now talking to GP Charles Alessi. He's a senior advisor for public health so in England and chief clinical uh, officer for HIMSS. He should know um, about the uh, And I'll give you a very simple example. Um, we're in a lab a very busy lab, and we're expecting um, a lot of samples coming in, histological samples, for the pathologist to look at. Using artificial intelligence, in other words, image, images, one can train um, a computer uh, to be able to detect whether images look abnormal. So just by doing that, one can prioritize the samples that need the attention of the lab before the others that look normal. So you improve flows. I mean, that is a really simple example of using artificial intelligence if we apply it correctly to start to see patterns to be able to identify diseases and changes quicker. Can you give an example of artificial intelligence that we've been talking about today? Well, yes. I mean, today we talked, we, you know, we talked about the use of uh, artificial intelligence, for example, and deep learning uh, to look at symptoms of people with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and to be able to detect changes to their care quicker than we would uh, see it. I think, I think we need to really take a step back. The, the new world, the new digital world, is not one whereby all doctors and all healthcare workers are going to be replaced with robots, even though that's what you read in some of the newspapers, perhaps. Um, I think the new world is one where, um, if, 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 if we're clever about the way we introduce these things, these, these processes will actually make the, the care of people um, more predictive and, more importantly, more consistent. Because um, uh, having systems which actually can mechanize some parts of what the doctor does is always very useful. Doctors, healthcare workers, human beings aren't necessarily as consistent in their delivery as a machine is. Uh, but of course, human beings are much more empathetic than a machine can ever be. As a patient, I want empathy and predictability. So I like artificial intelligence and the human being, both of them. And I think that's the way we need to think about it. Mm. So how far is it to, to that we actually can have both? I healthcare? think we have both now. And we're going to have much more of both as we move forward, especially as we move into a world of population health type approaches, which in Sweden you have already, which, you know, in a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of countries in the world are moving in that sort of direction. Um, um, uh, I think with time we'll get a little bit more machine involvement um, which is good because it will help the physician do what the physician does best, which is interact with the human being. This is about a human-to-human interaction. We must never forget that. Mm. You were talking about uh, the change role of the physicians. 
I mean, this is really quite difficult in many respects because a lot of us were not trained uh, in either motivational uh, interviewing with people or assisting people to change their behavior. We were trained in hard facts and data associated with medicine. And uh, certainly, perhaps it's reflective of my age, uh, I was taught um, uh, the importance of actually instructing a patient on what to do. That doesn't work very well. People have their own views, and I think what we need to do is allow people to make the best choices. And we can allow them to make the best choices by informing them of the consequences of those choices. But the decision needs to be theirs. And <clears throat> a lot of physicians are not trained to do that. They think their role is to tell people, you must not do it, and point the finger at them, and that's it. That's not the way the world works anymore. So how do you change the culture and the role of the well, physicians actually? I think you need to change a couple of things. Mm. One, you need to get people to take more responsibility for their own health and care. Mm. And that in itself is a struggle. But, you know, we need to start doing that. And secondly, we need to change... Well, people do, do want that, don't they? I well, mean, they do to a degree. Absolutely, they do. And that's fantastic. But perhaps not enough of them do. Um, and certainly there are significant inequalities, which we're all very aware of in terms of health outcomes. And we know that the people, particularly from lower socioeconomic groups, uh, who tend to have the worst outcomes, also have the worst involvement in their own health and care. They feel it's somebody else's, somebody else's duty to fix it. You know, hi doc, I've got a problem, you fix it. It's nothing to do with me. That sort of approach. So, so uh, and, and I'm making the point, I'm not saying everyone's like that, but certainly uh, there, is, there, is, there is a cohort of people who are like that. So we have some education to do that on, in that direction. Also, we have education in terms of the medical schools, the nursing schools and everything else around getting people to understand the new world where the consumer is important, where, again, assisting people to make the change and to want to make the change themselves is important. And I think that's the role. That, that's what we're talking about. These things take a long time. Mm. I know that you are uh, involved in, in uh, some of these uh, programs in uh in England, where you sort of help people to make the right decision by nudging or or was it like a gamification or can you tell me about this program? Well, there are a whole host of programs we're, we're piloting in England, really on a quite a large basis, looking at uh, incentivizing people to change behavior and using processes like affinity points and seeing how well those work. Affinity points are useful They're non-monetary, even though they can be translated into money directly. And there is a body of evidence to show that these systems actually do work at population level. Uh, there's good work which has been done in other countries uh, around this, particularly in North America, mainly in, in Canada, actually, rather than the United States. Um, but this is something whereby we're using these techniques more and more as we start to understand that the most important thing is assisting people making choices themselves. And this goes far beyond healthcare. I'm talking about government in general. I'm talking about everything we do. I think the world is really changing in that direction. Can you give me an example? Food we know is particularly ah. important. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, and um, uh, uh, managing your diet is particularly important. We know it has a significant effect uh, upon uh, uh, cardiometabolic disorders. Um, uh, smoking, we know, is a particular problem, uh, even though that problem is slowly diminishing as we're managing to manage smoking far better. Um, 
Um, activity is a significant problem. Uh, we are too sedentary and increasing our levels of activity is going to make a significant difference to our lives and to our lives to the extent that our uh, uh, future and our aging will be much more productive rather than you know, spending our time with more and more multimorbidity. Um, uh, we know uh, uh, on balance we've got to manage and moderate our alcohol intake, certainly in Western countries. So all these issues are really quite important, as well as systematically managing hypertension, systematically trying to avoid getting type 2 diabetes. Another example, we're, we're, we're trying to institute digital programs to stop people getting type 2 diabetes. If we start early enough, we should perhaps not get so many. So, so this program, so if you don't get diabetes or if you lower your blood sugar, or you can, you can get points. Well, you can get points by not smoking, you can get points by increasing your physical activity, you can get points by defined health goals, whichever way those are defined. The process is one of consistent engagement uh, to enable you, to, as, as always, for you to be in control of your health and care and for you to actually make the changes and for those to be incentivized. It helps the system, it helps the citizen, it empowers the citizen. What's wrong about that? Mm. And then you get points and you can switch them into... And then you can use them in supermarkets and you can use them in various different places. And what's important is you need to leave the choice to people to make the best determination as to how you can use those incentives. Now, you could even go a stage further and incentivize certain behaviors more than others, or certain foods more than others, for example. Uh, so if you have 100 points and you spend them on cream cakes, they're probably worth 50. But if you spend them on healthy foods, they could be worth 150. Mm -hmm. And then a person can make a choice as to whether they wish to get 150 points for their 100 or only 50 points for their 100. The decision is theirs, but the nudge is towards them using healthier. And it's nudging in two levels. Yes. First, yes. Yeah, first, first. And it's got to continue. Making the right choice. Yeah, two and times. then mm -hmm. a second time, mm -hmm. and hopefully a third time. You know, this has to continue. This is a consistent dialogue. And does it work? Well, the, the answer is from the evidence we have to date, and it's still early days, it, it shows promise. I think it would be it's very unwise to overpromise at this stage. We know how difficult it is to get people to change their behavior. We've tried for many years to tell people what's good for them and what's bad for them, and it hasn't really worked that well. So, so I certainly think it's worth trying, it's worth trying consistently, it's worth using gamification and various other mechanisms, and we'll see whether it works or not, and we can have another conversation in a year or two, and, we'll have, and, and you'll be able to ask me the same question again. So now we had to move and uh, start going with the bus over to uh, Helsinki University Hospital. Yes, and um, so and I'm sitting here next by Nicola Bedlington. You are from the European Association for Patients? The European Patients Forum. The European Patients Forum, yes. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Uh, have you been uh, listening all day? Yes, I was here for most of the day and fascinating, fascinating insights. I think there's now, I mean, evidence-based medicines remains the holy grail, of course. But I think with the onset of digital and with the big challenges facing the systems of the future, demographic aging, um, the demands that 
patients and citizens are placing on health systems, rightly, rightfully so, I think there's a shift towards actually understanding what really matters to patients at the end of the day and how to actually involve them in, in creating an environment to actually um, meet their needs and, and, and create solutions that benefit patients at the end of the day. You, you have a sort of a, a European overview of the patient situation. What, what would you say, what is the patient situation in Europe today? It's highly diverse. Um, there are countries of Europe where there's a lot of very good things happening, very advanced innovation. I would actually highlight Estonia as a very good example in the way that um, patients have been um, embedded in, in their overall digital health strategy and really included and also their approach to, to data. Um, there Owning the data, is that important? Do you think? No, 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 it's much wider than that. The data is a means to an end, not an end in itself, of course. Um, so Estonia, and, and, and of course we've seen good examples, also the partnership between Estonia and Finland, and I think that cross-border partnership is very important. We see other countries that are more progressive on other issues linked to, for example, um, paediatrics and working with young patients and young people. Um, so it varies very much across Europe. Um, there is an issue in terms of sustainability, uh, in terms of equitable access, um, and that again varies enormously across Europe as well. Why should you involve the patient uh, in the treatment? Patients, we believe, should be involved because they bring unique experiential knowledge through living with the disease and expertise that nobody else can have because they live day in, day out with their disease. Um, they're researching, they're working with their healthcare professionals, they're managing their lives living in their families, living in society, in community with their disease and that brings an awful lot of knowledge and an awful lot of expertise about what works, what doesn't work, aspirations, what actually constitutes quality of life for them, what are meaningful endpoints for them at the end of the day. So it's really vital to involve them, otherwise there's a risk that a technology or a solution actually isn't the right one. We have been touching the issue about uh, artificial intelligence and robotics and stuff. Do you think there is any uh, difficulties or could this be a problem for the patients in the end if we go and use uh, artificial intelligence more? I think that the jury is out. It's still early days. But the sense from the patient community at this juncture is that artificial intelligence will lead to, to better health outcomes um, and it will actually free up healthcare professionals to be able to spend more time with the patients. Um, and clearly the scope and opportunities around artificial intelligence is such that the data sets can be even larger, the opportunities of, of, of real innovation even bigger. And the example that we heard today, a very, very practical example with, with young patients with cancer um, and the role of the, the robot in, in allaying fear. Um, I mean, this is a very practical and concrete example of where it can bring that human factor to the fore as well.
Thank you. Uh, I'm standing here with um, uh, Christian Gutman, and you are a professor, or so used to be anyway, in uh, AI. Mm? Mm. Yeah, exactly. So the, uh, I have a long, long um, uh, experience and background in in artificial intelligence. Uh, worked scientifically and academically in that field for 25 years, and continue to do so. So I'm still at the Karolinska Institute and have PhD students. So that's one role. Yeah. I'm sort of doing the searching of artificial intelligence, uh, not on Earth, but uh, in healthcare. Are there any artificially intelligent in healthcare? Can you tell me about that? Generally, in, in the broad spectrum, I mean, the, the so AI is a field that en encompasses and consists of many different subfields. So some of them are, for example, natural language processing. So you have technologies like chatbots, for example. Uh, you have machine learning when you start seeing patterns and understanding patterns. So the AI can do that. Um, there's just different levels of AI. So uh, the highest possible level of AI is sometimes referred to as the artificial general intelligence, which consists of an AI that can do many, many tasks that we humans can do. And then you have these more narrow AIs. And so, yes, to your answer, to your question, um, uh, AI is used, for example, in, in pattern recognition and MRIs, you know, dermatology and cancer recognition. When you start having lots of data coming in that a human or a doctor has, would have a hard time to process, that is where you can apply machine learning algorithms, for example, to very quickly detect abnormalities and pictures. That's one. And as I mentioned earlier, chatbots or natural language processing, you can make sense of how humans um, use words, use phrases to express certain conditions. So a doctor in their notes, for example, um, and a, uh, in patients in chatbots. So that, that, is, that is a type of AI. Yeah. Do you think the artificial intelligence ever going to take over the role of a medical doctor? So, you know, like many jobs consist, you do many different types of tasks. And as has always been, I don't think that all tasks that the doctor is responsible for today will be all overtaken at once. Uh, but there will be certain ones which are, for example, dangerous, they are high, highly repetitive, that really do not necessarily need the core competency and, and, um, uh, and commitment by, by a medical doctor. So many of those tasks, I think, are, will go away and I think many are happy for them to sort of go away. So the fact, for example, it was named a few times today, the, the enormous amount of medical data or medical journals that are available now that the doctor would need to read in order to come up with an accurate diagnosis. It is impossible for any human to read all these types of things. So we need to find ways of, of dealing with that. And so um, it, it, I think in the far future it's quite possible that um, most medical conditions can be diagnosed, treated, or even prevented. And for, for that to be completely automated, I think that would be quite fine. Because imagine you have a broken arm, you go to a, some facility, you lay your arm under a machine. We talk about long time in the future, right? But it would essentially do the whole thing completely automatic, and you would be fixed in a very, very short period of time, accurately and reliably. So then you can go back to your friends and be very social. So that might sound like a very... Um, clinical data-driven procedure, but in the end of the day, I think that most people would be quite happy with such a such a thing, you know, such a procedure. I would say. Yeah, you you say that there's we we will not be there. Uh, no, we're not there now. But no, not the whole thing. But wh where are we now? 
Could you sort of put a status on where we are in AI? Mm. So again, you know, you have many different subfields. It's the same than when you would ask me, so where are we with medicine? Are we there yet with medicine? Is medicine, are we are we there? And I would give you the same answer there, like the medicine, there are different subfields of medicines, like for example, cancer uh, research and cancer treatments. And even in cancer research, when you ask me, how far are we there? I would say, well, certain, certain cancers we have good control over. We can deal better and better with them. Other cancers we have much less control over uh, in terms of treatments and knowledge. And it would be the same answer in, in AI. So in some fields with AI and the application of these AI uh, tools and, and technologies to certain subfields of medicine and healthcare, we have come very far. So it's, for example, come very clear and uh, shown that one part of this process of um, identifying patterns in MRIs and X-rays, for example, uh, that AIs are much, much better, much more accurate and much faster in making these types of detections than, for example, a uh, pathologist, you know, a radiologist in this case. So, um, so there are certainly, and then there are many fields where we certainly not so far, you know, there's many things that AI cannot do. For example, the or shouldn't do perhaps also in part the social interaction. Um, we had today an example where um, you know robots would be used to let's say uh, interact with children that have cancer, right? Whereby you sort of let's say distract them, you know, or make them interact with the robot, and they become very fascinated about it, and they almost forget about these very tedious procedures that they have to go through. And I think that's a good example. But by and large, I think most humans in hospitals and so on are quite happy to have human nurse, you know, interacting with, at least for the time being at the moment today. And, yeah, that would be... We, you are a scientist and you work for the industry. Uh, you work for Tieto, for example. And, uh, so I just wonder, how far would you say that the science and the industry today is from uh, healthcare? So, I mean, healthcare per se is also an industry, right? So then you have IT. So, just to understand the question, so I'm thinking when you say science and scientific discoveries and how far are they from being impacted or how much they impact our, let's say, healthcare services and medicine and diagnosis and treatments, it is like with many things. Healthcare is particularly slow in adopting these new technologies. So, in terms of what we could do technologically, uh, and what's used, I think there's a, it's a lag of 15, 20 years, I would say. So a huge lag between what you could possibly already use today with a big, great benefit. How will we implement it? Do you have to work harder from, from the industry? Or uh, do you think, will this be uh, a demand from the patients one day? Mm. <sighs> yeah, so, I mean, this is, healthcare is just one of the most challenging environments, highly regulated and highly, in many ways, quite established in its procedures. So how do we get these new technologies out to uh, to the patient as soon as possible? I think by and large we will see a huge demand by patients. So I do agree that patients, number one, become more educated. They know what's happening. So they also, I think they're also driven by all the other consumer experiences that they have. So when we use, you know, on Amazon we order something or we use other type of technology or, you know, like we listen to an audiobook, we have such instant access to those types of, you know, like goods and products and services that one is starting to expect the same from the healthcare system, the same from the, uh, from the government system, right? So it, uh, it cannot be as slow and 
and, and inefficient. So I think many it will be driven a lot by the patients. And also another big factor for us in Europe now is that I think we will start seeing technologies emerging in Singapore and China, maybe in part in the US, where citizens there will have um, access to pretty advanced AI technology. You know, I mean, you can think of even today having a chat to a chatbot about your condition. You send a picture about a certain mole or lesion on your, on your skin. Uh, it will be automatically detected and the AI chatbot will give you advice on what to do next. So this is, this, of course, there's a lots of question marks of how you need to properly evaluate all these types of things. But this is what you will continue to see uh, in many other countries. And, and, um, and this is something which will drive the demand here, I would say. I think, of course, uh, doctors have gone through a very long study to understand, to do differential diagnosis, for example, and that's perhaps the biggest difference. And if you and I go to the internet and Google some, some symptoms and you get like, um, you know, whatever it is, it tells you you have some type of cancer, right? I mean, this is usually not how a doctor uh, makes a decision, right? I mean, they usually very slowly and accurately go step by step and try to identify and exclude certain conditions. So it's a pretty procedural, well-established uh, way of doing it. But I think the chatbots today or the AI technologies, if you were to have the ambition to automate the entire process, they would be lying somewhere in the middle there, right? So you can do some of those things uh, automated and very reliably. We had today another example about leprosy, which apparently is still a big issue in the world. So giving people in rural communities in Africa, India and so on the possibility to make a picture of some lesion on their skin and send it off to some serv service and then get a response of the, of the um, you know, probability of that being leprosy and then have the chance for it to be cured very early on. You know, uh, instead of waiting until you start having severe damage to your neuro neurological system and so on. So those types of technology, I think, are, we almost have a moral responsibility to allow those technologies to go to, to people that may not have top access to, to healthcare systems today, you know. And that is for me a, a no-brainer where, where you could argue, okay, under, is the risk does the benefit outweigh the risk under those conditions, which a doctor will o always ask themselves for patients? And in these particular circumstances, I think that that would be the case, for example, to be evaluated, of course, right? Uh. Uh, I'm from Stockholm, and you were born and uh, raised in Australia somewhere. And uh, we are now standing here in Helsinki, and you, I know that you work uh, in a lot of different countries. Can you compare uh, how far are we uh, where who who done the most uh, advantage in this area uh, would you say mm. yeah we're sitting right now at a, at a we are now at a time where so much happens in many countries at such enormous speed uh, you, you almost every day you read something new of significance in certain places in the world right I mean whether it's now dermatology or you have robots that are used in, in uh, uh, nursery homes to move patients you know from one bed to another so a lot happens so I can say this in the I think in Europe and the Nordic countries we're reasonably digitized so we, we see that a lot of things are quite nicely advanced many other countries are like very impressed by our 1177 service where we can for example see our journal data and diagnose and everything that's very few other countries have that i think it's only finland and, and few others and this is an enormous advantage and then of course we quite engineering minded you know the the nordics you know germany netherlands there's many folks that are great engineers so that's there but when it 
comes to the specific discipline of AI and machine learning, we are lagging hugely behind. The private investment is very low and therefore we overall compare what I'm seeing now, when I'm also discussing with others, we lie, we lying quite low in Europe overall and in the Nordic when it comes to the AI technology as opposed to uh, to China for example or Singapore and so on and then after that comes China and many people like for example Kai Fu Lee or those that make assessments globally they, they said it's a two um, it's a two horse race right uh, and you see that Europe is not part of the two horse race essentially at the moment so that's what I'm seeing so we need to make uh, up for for that for us lying behind, we need to really speed up to be not becoming irrelevant, I think. Mm. And how do you speed up if you were like a dictator of a, a Nordic country? What would you decide? A benign dictator, I assume, right? Uh, yeah, so if I was in charge for a day or something. Um, so that's a very good question. I think. I think I would really, I mean, there are two levels where I would focus on. One is that the the regulatory bodies and the government's um, the government's role which is to build a framework that enables companies and, and value to be created so it's not that the government has to develop the products and services but they have to create the right framework in order for these products and services to be uh, to be developed by companies and the, so that's a in my opinion one of the main focus areas I would be thinking of like this would mean well are there regulations at the moment that hinder these type of progress forward. The second thing I would be focusing on, and they are by the way plenty, and the second thing I would be focusing on, well whom can, can I give the funding top-down, so for example municipalities or hospitals and say well this is earmarked money only for AI machine learning uh, development and not for something else. So you need to spend whatever 10% of the overall budget on these new technology and by the end of the year I want a list of a hundred AI use cases or machine learning use cases that have made a difference to patients and, and no beating around the bush you know and because this is in part actually done in China where you very much focus on making this technology happen happen and earmark these and then the, the third one I would focusing on a lot is um, to keep the com attract and keep the competencies in Europe and in the Nordic countries at the moment these talents move outside the Nordics because we just don't have yet the infrastructure sufficiently mature for AI machine learning to fully grip. So the best talents, they are now recruited to Beijing and, and um, to Silicon Valley still. So we have few people left. So how do we make sure that those uh, talents stay here, you know, and the right talents? So, so people that have done the mathematics, you know, machine learning, psychology and those things. Um, so this is on that level. And then at the implementation level, this is on a government level, right? Isn't that sort of a concern for the companies as well? I mean, you have to pay these people and you have to give them interesting uh, yes. tasks. Yes. Uh, so, so is that sort of your responsibility as well? Or what do you say about that? As in me as being the benign dictator of a country, you mean? No, uh, or no, no, no so, sorry, I just moved back to your old uh, persona, persona that it's, uh, you are working with a big company yeah, in, uh, yeah. in yes, the Nordic absolutely. country. Exactly right, yeah, and that's, I mean, now... I got maybe a bit caught in this idea of being a benign dictator here, but I mean, this is sort of more from a government perspective, right? That That's what needs to be created. Going back to what actually needs to happen on the ground, and this was the second point I wanted to make, is then, of course, well, what can companies do now? They, um, I guess, 
one of the things that's currently lacking is the private investment. I think it lies somewhere two or four percent overall in in Europe as opposed to China or the or Europe, right? So if there is no commitment on a leadership level by many companies in the Nordic countries, it makes it very hard to to really push these technologies into these different sectors, right? So so um so on that level, that's sort of that level where the commitment by the leaders need to be there and they need to understand how the business transforms, right? Um, and then, of course, ultimately building, I think there need to be more showcases, if you like, more cases which makes it tangible, where people understand the use of this technology. So it becomes really understandable by the general population, by customers and so on. And that requires investment where you often don't know if it has a business impact. So today we saw a few examples, right? So so the, using, using a, a robot to make children more comfortable in the way how they receive treatment. So I don't, even though we saw a business case, I think it was, let's say, a little high level. It, it needed to be, um, it, it's more for a showcase at this point in, in time. And that is fine. That is absolutely necessary. You will, you find many of these types of showcases, for example, by leading organizations and uh, universities in the US, like the MIT, you know, or in Silicon Valley also. So this is extremely important for people to feel what it means, what it can do for us in a beneficial way. Otherwise, it, be, it stays very abstract. And people, this is another huge concern, by the way, which I would either as a company uh, representative or as a government um, leader, I would ensure that those that speak about the topic of AI need to have the right competencies of speaking about it, need to have the right background. They are far too many at the moment that speak about AI machine learning. They have not, don't have the right background to speak about it, which is very bad because then it, it moves the entire structure, the focus, the, the investments into the wrong direction. What would be the right uh, background? Um, so it, it would depend a little bit what you want to achieve. But let's say, for example, you want to build, let's say you want to build AI, you know, uh, then, then I think it is imperative that you will have as part of the team people with an engineering background, mathematics background. Much of what happens in AI is building the system. Um, and so you need people with that mathematics, engineering, AI background, you know, maybe a psychology background. So this is sort of the core. Um, if, you, if you want to build up, let's say, business strategy, you know, then you need to start really understanding the, the, the industry area very deep. So 10, 20 years of experience in a particular industry, let's say, for example, you know, if it's in self-driving cars, I think it is by and large quite beneficial to understand how cars work and what all the intricacies are of building a car, right? Or in, in healthcare, you know, I think it is very, very useful to understand the medical field and understand diseases. I mean, it's the same, it's the same uh, for any other when you ask, for example, whom should you have when you have a medical panel or you make decisions about healthcare investments, it's, it's similar. There you would expect people to have understood the industry of healthcare and have people with a medical doctoral degree or something of that sort. You know? So that is, a, that is absolutely essential and f that, that I think is missing a, a lot. And it's not easy because there are not so many that have actually studied it for the last 20 years because so little investment went into this area. Mm. You are the sponsor of this episode, uh, of this podcast. Uh, can you give me any, any concrete example of any AI project that you are doing together? And that the, the primary driver of this particular project has been with the social exclusion case in ESPO, where we were looking at um, people that are at risk of being socially excluded from, you know, from the system, essentially. And that comes with costs, uh, 
you know, to the individual, of course, in terms of a big burden, social burden for them and their family, but also, of course, a cost for the government down the line. Because as people become socially excluded, you are, um, you know, you, you're more, let's say, you also develop more chronic conditions and depression and so on. So this is something where I don't think we have worked directly together with the Microsoft researchers on that topic, but we have developed it and, uh, and in part with uh, Microsoft. Uh, technology as we do with many you know partners in the ecosystem thank you for this time professor gutman nicola bedlington charles alessi and most of all my sponsor microsoft i can definitely touch artificial intelligence after this episode but i want to know more so join me again here on the health a pod about innovation in healthcare my name is hannah brother the health <laughs>